art. They are literally art. They are poetry. They are designed to point the readers and singers and listeners to God through its beautiful composition, pointing us to his glory, his sovereignty, his majesty, his beauty, his grace, his love, his power, and his justice. Now, if I was preaching today's sermon in a preaching class in seminary like in the old days, I would get bad marks for my introduction because I am just going to jump right in. But I'm not in seminary anymore, so I get to do my sermon introductions however I want. So let's read Psalm 103 together again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels. Bless, excuse me, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen. These are the words of the Lord. Psalm 103 is written, as you may see in your copy of the scriptures, by David. But we're not given the specifics of the circumstances surrounding its writing. But what we do know about David helps us as we read this psalm. We know David was a musician, and he was a shepherd. He was a son. He was a warrior. He was a husband. He was a father. He was a king. And he was, of course, a child of God. The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who was anointed as king to replace Saul, Israel's first king. He was an artist. He was a shepherd boy who then turned mighty warrior and king. He was a man with tremendous victories and horrific failures. A man who knew what it was like to feel on top of the world and literally be on top of the world, as it were, and also to fall into a low depths of despair. He was a man who knew what it was to have great luxuries and convenience and also to come face to face with death. And which exact stage of David's life he wrote this, what roles he may have had at the time, we can't be certain, but we do know some things about his nature and his character and his context as we read it. And so, when David speaks of God, 
He's talking about someone that he knows, someone that he has a real and intimate relationship with. When David speaks of danger, it's not an abstract idea to him as if it might someday happen to him. It's something that did confront him many times. When he speaks of sin, he knew what it was to feel the crushing weight of shame and guilt on his shoulders. And when he talks about joy and hope in God, he does so with personal experience, having gone through what it's like to be forgiven by God, to experience his grace, to feel his mercy, and to be saved by him. Psalm 103 is the first in a small group of psalms here at the end of book four that focus on God's gracious work to his people in the lives of the people of Israel. The final one in this group is Psalm 106, which Brian will preach next Sunday. And we'll see some recurring rhythms in that psalm. It's a much longer psalm of God's grace in the lives of his people despite their recurring rhythms of rebellion and sin. And so Psalm 103 is the start of this little section of, of just a few psalms. Some suggest that Psalm 104 ought to be read or sung right along with it, because if you note briefly, you'll see, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, at the beginning and end of that one as well. But the heart of the message of Psalm 103, and yes, the heart of the, that whole little section, including Psalms 104 through 106, is a call to praise the Lord because of what he has done in the lives of his people. That's the heart of it. And that call is what bookends this 22-verse passage before us today. It's repeated twice in verses 1 through 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Then in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then four times in the final three verses. Let's start by looking at its first occurrence in verses 102. This call, th these words in verses 102, 1 and 2, excuse me, are a call to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Then in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. But notice, it is not a call to worship for a congregation, although obviously we used it as a call to worship today. Christians have done so for a long time. But in its most immediate context, it is a call to worship from David to himself. It's in plain language before us. The beginning of verse 1, the beginning of verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So what's David doing here? He's calling on himself to give praise to God. To bless his holy name at the end of verse 1. To forget not at the end of verse 2 all that God has done. And in fact, I think that little phrase, forget not, is key to understanding Psalm 103 and applying it to our lives. Look at it again. Forget not all his benefits. The second half of verse 2 is like a springboard off of which the rest of the psalm dives into a deep and wide pool of descriptions of God's many mighty wonders and works. And I think that's how we ought to read and understand and apply Psalm 103. It starts and ends with this refrain, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Kind of like when we sang just a few minutes ago, His mercy is more. We started out by saying, praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness new every morn, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. And then we got to the end and we sang that all over again. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, 
stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And so this refrain starts the psalm, then the whole psalm continues from there, and then it ends with that refrain. That's what's happening in Psalm 103. The opening phrase introducing us to this theme, which is that God deserves praise for all that he has done, and then the rest of the psalm fleshing it all out and then ending with that bookend of the same refrain. It's slightly differently expressed, but still the same refrain. The end of verse 2 says, forget not all his benefits. And from there, we're then given 17 verses filled with his benefits. And then the refrain wraps it up at the end. And so I think Psalm 103 is best understood and seen as a whole centered around one common thing about what God has revealed about himself through his works, that he is a God of steadfast love. Because David is calling himself to worship here in Psalm 103. He's calling himself to praise God, to devote every beat of his heart to ascribing glory to the Lord that he deserves. Why? Because of his steadfast love. We sang of God's steadfast love this morning too, didn't we? God's steadfast love is his covenant loyalty, you might say. It's a long-term reliable loyalty within the context of a covenant relationship with his people. God's steadfast love means that however fickle and unreliable his people are in relation to him, he is always completely, totally faithful. His love is steadfast. He is committed forever to loving his people. He's faithful in his covenant relationship, and that's what's at the heart of the benefits of verses 3 through 19. Steadfast love. And so I'm not going to try to cleverly break down Psalm 103 into three points in a poem. I simply want to point you to David's demonstrations of God's steadfast love given as reasons to praise the Lord. And then at the end, I'll have four calls for you that I hope will help us apply this to our lives. First, we see that the steadfast love of God is on display in Psalm 103 in his forgiveness towards sinners. The beginning of verse 3, one of the benefits that he begins with is that he forgives all your iniquity. Look down at the beginning of verse 8. It says that he is merciful and gracious towards sinners. In the second part of verse 8 and into verse 9, it says that he is slow to anger and abounding in, there's that phrase, steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So he's a forgiving God. He is a gracious God. He is a merciful God, and he is slow to anger with sinners. Unlike us who are slow to forgive, and not slow to anger. It says he doesn't always chide sinners, or in other words, accuse them unendingly. Unlike us, who love to hold other sinners captives, captive for things they've done to hurt us, though we expect them to forgive us swiftly. It says he doesn't hold on to his anger forever. Unlike us, who love to hold on to our anger so that we can feel powerful over those who have harmed us. 
You know, these verses aren't telling us that God is not angry. It's telling us that because of his steadfast love to his chosen people, he doesn't stay angry with them, which implies that anger is present, but he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. And that's almost certainly a direct quote from Exodus 34 when God reveals his name to Moses and describes himself this way as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But you know, the end of that passage in Exodus 34, God says, he will by no means clear the guilty. And so it's not saying, Psalm 103 is not saying that God is just going to overlook everything like a jolly old grandpa and let everything slide. No, he's angry with sin. And he has anger, just anger, toward unrepentant sinners. But his nature is also steadfast in love. And he does not stay angry with those whom he loves. Verse 10 describes this as well, and it says that he does not deal with us according to our sins, that he does not repay us according to our iniquities. That's mercy and forgiveness towards sinners who deserve righteous anger and judgment. He does not repay them according to what they have earned. Sinners earn the wages of death. They earn wrath, but God gives those he loves something else. Benefits, steadfast love, forgiveness. We also see the steadfast love of God on display in Psalm 103 through his rescue from harm. You see at the end of verse 3, after he says, who heals all your iniquity, he says this other phrase, who heals all your diseases. This is a little bit of a tricky one. There's some debate as to what exactly the phrase heals all your diseases means. And to be quite honest, I kind of go back and forth on this myself. On the one hand, healing of diseases can be referring to the spiritual disease of sin, our greatest sickness, as it were. And so this could be a figure of speech here meant to parallel the forgiveness in the first part of verse 3. And of course, on the other hand, it could be talking about God's power to literally heal people. And at least at the moment, I think it's that one. I could be wrong, but I think it makes a lot of sense for David to include physical care in a list of all the ways that God shows his steadfast love to his people. Here in 2022, we who live in the sort of aftermath of the COVID pandemic, healing from sickness is a bigger deal to us lately, but think about how much bigger of a deal it was for David and for the ancient people of his time. In their time, a small cut could prove extremely dangerous. For us, in just sort of ordinary everyday terms, sickness and disease is a less serious matter. There obviously remain in our time very serious problems with, the di- with disease. I don't mean to, to minimize that at all. There are some even in our church, but I think you know what I mean. Every time someone recovered from any kind of sickness or injury in the ancient world, it was a really big deal a bigger deal than it is for us typically today. In fact, it hasn't even really been that long 
that modern medicine has now been used uh, in God's grace to transform the world, whether we're talking about higher expectancies of recovery from sickness or quick treatments available in modern societies. But in David's time, healing sickness was a big deal. And so when he says in verse 15 that man's days are like grass, it means something a little different to him than it does to us, or at least it's a more strong and severe statement for him than it is for us. But back to verse 3 in the second part of it, the phrase right after verse 3, the beginning of verse 4, has to do with physical rescuing care as well, who redeems your life from the pit. Now, this word redeems feels a little different to us today because of our placement in redemptive history after the cross, after the resurrection of Jesus. But for David, using the word translated for us redeemed was primarily connected to the idea of rescue. And the pit is almost certainly simply talking about literal physical death. In the Psalms, when you see the phrase, the pit, it's a metaphor for the grave, the hole, the pit that was dug for dead bodies. And so what David is saying here is literally he rescues from death. He rescues from the grave. And remember, David had faced the threat of death. Certainly, potentially through disease, which he... I think he may have been referring to in the previous phrase, but he certainly was also in battle. He had been confronted by wild animals. David knew what it was to be rescued by God from death and to experience his gracious, steadfast love in that way. And now, of course, there is a spiritual application and connection here. It comes into clearest focus for us through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus Christ, God's people are rescued or redeemed spiritually from the pit of everlasting judgment and death that we deserve because of our sin. Praise God for that, amen? Think about that when you read Psalm 103. But in its most immediate context, David is talking about rescue from the grave. And you know, we can also see God's steadfast love on display through rescue from harm or physical care in Jesus' life and ministry too. What was one of the things that occupied the most time in Jesus' ministry? Certainly preaching, certainly teaching, certainly discipling, but also he healed diseases and sicknesses. We'll see when we return to Matthew in a few weeks that one of the main reasons Jesus did this was to fulfill what the Old Testament had said about the servant of the Lord that he would come and bear our sicknesses and diseases. And so, yes, God's steadfast love is displayed also in his gracious rescue from harm or his physical care. We also see David describing God's steadfast love in Psalm 103 in terms of God's justice. Look at verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Recently in our E412 class time, we tackled the issue of God's justice for several weeks, and that's become a topic with many potential pitfalls, as perhaps you're aware. Some evangelicals have wound up minimizing the power and need for the gospel and have focused on social activism in the name of justice, but to the exclusion of gospel truth at times. Others have minimized the need to represent God's care for justice through merciful action for the needy because of their legitimate concerns for the other side's failures. And so what has happened in many conservative 
circles, evangelicals like us, are kind of afraid when we come to Psalm 103, verse 6 these days. Don't want to open the Pandora's box and get into the justice debate. Just, let's just move to verse 7. But let's lean in, friends. I'm not going to take long on this, but don't be afraid of it. God's justice is a good and beautiful thing. It is one of his attributes. It is one of the ways that he reveals and displays his steadfast love. David says here in verse 6 that the God of covenant loyalty, the God of steadfast love, the Lord, Yahweh here, will work for all who are oppressed. He will do something about the righteousness and justice that is needed. It means that this God of steadfast love cares about those who seem or feel voiceless, those who feel or seem abused, those who are truly treated unjustly, those who have been marginalized and disregarded. They have the steadfast love of God looking out for them. And he will, Psalm 103.6, work justice and righteousness on their behalf. One way or another, he will bring about justice. David also describes God's steadfast love by speaking of satisfaction with good things being given. You see that in verse 5. In this beginning of the list of benefits, you see also here, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You know what happens when people pursue satisfaction through either sin-stained or sinful things? They find nothing but misery. They don't find the satisfaction they want. And in fact, the deeper and deeper they go, the less and less they find it. The pursuit of satisfaction through sinful lust. The pursuit of satisfaction through the accumulation of stuff and money. The pursuit of satisfaction through hanging on to bitterness and anger and resentment and stubbornness. The pursuit of satisfaction through career or vocational success. Do any of those things actually ultimately lead to feeling renewed in your strength like an eagle soaring through the sky? Of course not. That's why men like Michael Jordan and Tom Brady and Roger Clemens couldn't stay retired. They had to come back and keep playing that sport that they felt gave them meaning and worth and satisfaction. It's why in the documentary, I, none of you will be surprised to know I've been watching the documentary on Derek Jeter. It's why Derek Jeter says that when he retired, he didn't know what to do with himself. And he was miserable and he felt empty. But do you know what happens when God satisfies you with good things? Your youth is renewed like the eagles. The steadfast love of God provides truly good, eternally good things to his people that bring them satisfaction and strength. And what is the most ultimate display of the good things that God gives to his people? He gives them Christ. He gives them grace. He gives them a life of a relationship with him. God also reveals himself in his relationship to his people. That's what he's getting at in verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. There are so many things that fall under the category of that simple phrase. You just go all the way back and read the whole Pentateuch and get a picture of what he's saying here. 
He's revealing, God is revealing himself to his people so that they can have a relationship with him. And that is gracious love, isn't it? We don't deserve to have a relationship with this beautiful, glorious, loving, righteous, holy God. But praise God, David says here, God has revealed himself to his people. Now, through his steadfast love and grace, they know how to have a relationship with this glorious, beautiful, and loving God. We also see the steadfast love of God here in Psalm 103 described in terms of an eternal kingdom. Look at verses 15 through 16, where he says that as for man, his days are like grass, flourishing like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. That speaks of the finiteness of mankind. And then, in verses 17 through 18, he says, but, unlike this transient humanity, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. He contrasts the transient nature of humanity with the eternal nature of God. It's a covenant loyalty. It's a love. It's a faithfulness that lasts forever throughout generations, throughout family lineage. After all, in verse 19, he says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This is a God of steadfast love who reigns eternally. We also see his steadfast love described in terms of greatness and vastness. I think that's what David means at the end of verse 4 when he says that this God of steadfast love crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Because remember, in the beginning of verse 4, he speaks of being near death and burial. And then in the second part of verse 4, he speaks of being treated like royalty. In verse 11, then David measures God's steadfast love, as it were, by referencing the highest point he could conceive of. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And then in verse 12, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So he says that his steadfast love is so great, so vast, that it reaches as high as the highest point I can imagine. It goes as wide as east is from west, just eternally going the opposite direction. The Apostle Paul would later say that he wanted the Ephesian believers to understand the breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Tim Keller said in a little Psalms devotional on this passage that God knows us to the bottom and yet he loves us to the skies. And that is connected to his steadfast love also being displayed in his fatherly compassion. In verses 13 through 14, these beautiful words, we sang them in that opening song. Father-like he tends and spares us. That's what it's referring to when we sing that phrase. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So interesting that in verses 13 and 14, David moves from the language of transcendence in verses 11 and 12 to language of intimacy. God's love is huge, 
and it's powerful, and it's hard to measure, and it's also fatherly. He's a good father, a father who shows compassion, a father who isn't harsh, a father who knows that we were made from the dust because he's the one who made us from that dust. You know, friends, we don't even remember that we are made from dust. We think that we are so good and so wise and so strong and so capable and so powerful, but we're made from dust. We're frail like the grass and the flowers that flourish and then fade. And God knows this, and he treats us with fatherly, gentle compassion and grace. And so that is the steadfast love of God in Psalm 103, my friends. That's what David was telling himself to not forget. Calling himself to praise God because he is a God of steadfast love. Remember all these ways that he is a God of steadfast love, self. And that's therefore what we must tell ourselves when we read and sing and pray Psalm 103. And so, as we seek to apply this to our lives for the last several minutes we have together, I would invite you to just zoom out and apply Psalm 103 to your heart and life by considering four calls. The first call being a call to dependence based on remembering the need of our hearts. David knew that he was needy. He knew that he was sinful. He knew that he was even physically vulnerable. He knew that he needed the compassionate, gracious, merciful care and love of a father who knows that he was made from dust. And he knew that he needed to forget not, verse 2, all of his benefits. He knew that he needed to remember to not forget God in every moment of his life. He needed to depend on God for healing. He needed to depend on God for justice. He needed to depend on God for the revelation of his nature and will. He needed to depend on God for the preservation of his transient and temporary life. But most of all, for forgiveness for his sins. And Psalm 103 calls you and me to depend on God in the same way. David's circumstances were different from ours in many ways. But in many ways, they're also similar. We, too, need God's sustaining, preserving care in our frail, fickle, and sin-stained lives and the world that we live in. But you know, my friends, you could live a life of health and wealth and still go to the grave without ever having met and embraced Jesus as king. And so more than physical healing and preservation... We need spiritual saving. And so Psalm 103 is a call to us to remember, to depend on God because of the needs of our hearts. The second call is a call to obedience motivated by remembering the salvation of our lives. The connection between God's grace and man's obedience is an important one. And it's woven throughout Psalm 103, as you've noticed. Psalm 103 speaks of God showing grace to those who keep his commands and fear him. It doesn't say that our 
keeping of his commands and our fear of him leads to his grace, but it does say that he gives grace to those who fear him. See that nuanced difference there? It cannot be saying that we earn his steadfast love and grace by our obedience to his commands and fear of him. That's inconsistent with the rest of the scriptures. And in fact, it's inconsistent with the rest of Psalm 103. Does he not say that he does not deal with us, in verse 10, according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities? In other words, we have sinned. And so he is gracious to not give us what we deserve. So it has to mean when it calls, when it refers to God showing grace and mercy to people who obey him, that the ones that God is gracious to are the ones that he has chosen and transformed into his people who then know and love and serve and obey him. And you know, the fear of the Lord boils down just to that, knowing him leading to revering him and loving him and serving him. But my friends, you do not get to a place of fearing God and obeying his commands without the transformation that comes from outside us and then transforms us through saving grace. And that's what's at the heart of this psalm for David. The steadfast love of God displayed through mercy, through forgiveness, through grace towards undeserving sinners. And friends, that's what's at the heart of the message of the gospel to all of us gathered here today. Good news, my friends. Even though you're a sinner, even though you deserve every ounce of God's just judgment, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the ultimate display of his steadfast love that there ever was. Jesus came and he lived perfectly. He then died a sacrificial atonement for sin that we deserve to die. Then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And through that, we get three really important benefits. Three sort of big theological words that theologians like to use. Maybe you're familiar with them, maybe you're not. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Through the, through the life of Christ and his giving us his righteousness, we are justified. We are declared righteous. We are brought back to life, as it were. Through Jesus' atoning work, through his sacrificial death, now we are able to be sanctified. We are able to put to death our flesh and grow in grace. And through Jesus' raising from the dead and going into glory, we now are united and raised with him and will one day be perfectly, totally glorified. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the heart of David in Psalm 103, the steadfast love of God given to his people that then leads them to obey, to fear him, to know him, to serve him and love him. And my friends, when you know the depths of your sinfulness and when you know the eternal nature of your need of your soul for salvation. And when you know the holiness of God that requires judgment on sin, and when you know the depths of God's love for you and its height and its breadth and its width, and when you know that he saves you despite your sinfulness and remove your transgressions and their punishment as far as the east is from the west, you will love him. 
and you will want to follow him. You will long to serve him. And so, yes, my friends, care about obedience to God's commands. This psalm does call us to obedience. You must obey him. But what motivates that obedience must be love for him because of his love for you. He saved you. He rescued you from sin and its wages. And so the hymn writer says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The third call on us from Psalm 103 is a call to confidence secured in remembering the eternity of our hope. In David's call to himself to praise God because of his steadfast love, part of what David does is stir up his confidence in the eternality of his hope in God. That's what he's getting at when he says in verses uh, 15 and 16, Man blooms and blossoms like a flower or grass, but also like grass and flowers, he eventually fades and dies. But, he says, God's steadfast love goes on forever and ever. He's the king. He's the one in whom I hope and trust. And so we too must call ourselves to remember the eternality of our hope in God and praise him for it and trust him for it. My friend, listen, you do not have to go through life worried and stressed and afraid. You don't have to be afraid of people. You don't have to be afraid of God's providence. You don't have to be worried about what might happen. You don't have to be hesitant. You don't have to hide from everybody. You don't have to close off yourself to others. You don't have to be slow to open up and show the real you. No, because your hope is not in people. Your hope is not in circumstances. Your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is in God. Not the people who have hurt you or your circumstances that frustrate you. He has shown you his steadfast love before. He is showing it to you now. You will see it if you look for it. And he will continue to show it to you forever. The final call is a call to worship centered around remembering the love of our God. And this is the heart of the whole matter. As I've said multiple times this morning, hope you're getting it, David was calling himself, and Psalm 103 is therefore calling us to praise, to worship that is centered around remembering God's steadfast love. And, you know, that does mean singing. Talked about that in Psalm 100, the joyful noise that we are called to, a festal shout that's more like a warrior, a warrior cry than even a song. So it means singing. It means passionate singing. It also means sharing stories of God's grace. It means living a life to the praise of God's glory. It does mean obeying his commands, but more than anything, my friends, it means a heart of worship. Look all the way back at the beginning in verse 1. Notice what the worship David is calling for looks like. All that is within me, bless his holy name. With every fiber of his being, with all that he is, with all of his emotions, with his physical makeup, with his mental capacity, all of him. And so, too, all of us, all of who we are, must 
worship God because of his love for us. And you know, that call to worship at the beginning in verses 1 and 2 has threads that go right to the end in verses 20 through 22, where you see this closing refrain, which really is the climax of the song. If you read Psalm 103, and I'm going to do it again in just a second here, you can just sort of hear it getting louder and louder and louder until it bursts in verses 20 through 22 where he says, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David starts with this conversation with himself, this introspective preaching to himself, as it were, to remember to worship and praise God because of all that he has done. But by the time he gets to the end, he is aimed outward. He's even talking to the angels in heaven, and he's talking to everyone on earth and everywhere. He's saying, I've been calling myself to worship God for all that he has done. And you know what? I'm calling all of you too to worship this great God. Because my friends, the inward remembering of God's steadfast love leads to the outward sharing of God's steadfast love. And so, friends, Psalm 103 calls us today to worship that is centered around remembering the love of our God. You know, friends, we live in a God-belittling world. Many times, God-denying. And all day long, everything around us calls us to draw our eyes downward away from the lofty and glorious majesty and beauty of our God. But this beautiful portion of God's word, Psalm 103, draws our eyes upward, up to the beauty of his holiness, up to the splendor of his majesty, up to the astonishing news of his grace and mercy for undeserving sinners like us. And so, friend, as you look up, ask yourself, are you blessing, are you praising this glorious Lord with your life? Are you remembering his benefits or forgetting them? Are you, is your life centered on the news of his steadfast love for you and all who will believe? So friend, I say to all of us this morning, remember his steadfast love to you when you're tempted to sin. Remember his steadfast love to you when you are depressed and discouraged. Remember his steadfast love to you when people mistreat you. Remember his steadfast love to you in your illness. Remember his steadfast love to you in the face of death. Remember his steadfast love to you when you are sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Remember his steadfast love to you as you go through the regular, mundane, ordinary yet challenging rhythms of life. Remember his steadfast love and praise him. By the time David got to the end of Psalm 103 in, Psalm, in verse 22, he realized that all of God's, right there at the beginning, works. His creation, his people, the benefactors of his reign, all join their voices together to praise God in the greatest choir, the greatest orchestra, the greatest band, if you will, of all time. And so in just a moment, 
we are going to sing this next song, 10,000 Reasons, and I would invite you to join in with the eternal band, the eternal orchestra, the eternal choir, whatever you prefer, and give praise to our great God of steadfast love. I'm going to read this again, and then I'll close us in prayer before we sing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of worship. You have done great and marvelous things. You have saved us. You preserve us. You care for us. You treat us with compassion and grace. You draw us close in a relationship with you. You've revealed yourself to us. You've secured our eternal destiny. You have made us recipients of your steadfast love. Now, Lord, please help us to respond to the truths of who you are and what you have done with dependence with obedience, with confidence, and with worship, that we may say, along with David, that all that is within us praises your holy name. In Jesus' name. We have a clear call from Scripture to bless the Lord. So let's do that now. Let's sing because we have more than 10,000.